Many pilots are reticent to seek mental health support. Matt McNeil was an airline pilot who is now a licensed professional counselor who spends his life supporting pilots' mental health. I really hope you find this conversation enlightening. I know I did. Just please take note. If you are seeking mental health support or thinking that you might need some mental health support, that there is absolutely nothing in this podcast which constitutes medical advice for you. If you're suffering, please reach out to a professional or reach out to your union's peer support committee and they can help point you in the right direction. Matt McNeil, you're a licensed pilot. You were an airline pilot. You are a mental health professional. You have a company called Lift Effect which is into helping pilots. Can you yeah. just tell me what you yeah. do, why you do it, and uh, what your company has to offer? Totally. So, yeah, Lift Effect. There's kind of two clients that Lift Effect has, primarily pilots, uh, professional pilots is our, our primary focus. But we also, a secondary client would be airlines, um, unions, and uh, like corporate flight departments. Um, but first and foremost are pilots. And so we help pilots that suffer with mental health related issues. Um, and often it manifests itself in performance related issues. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's all mental health professionals. Um, it's equal parts coaching uh, as it is, you know, psychotherapy. And then with the airlines or the, the, uh, the org- on the organizational level, we help companies um, be able to identify areas where they can, you know, proactively and safely outreach to pilots that are suffering with, with some of these issues, because as we know, as pilots that, um, you know, pilots are not super quick to, to come forward. Uh, So we're working with companies to try to, to find ways of positively, proactively um, outreaching uh, in a safe way to try to help help these pilots that are suffering. You know, one of the things that that kind of occurred to me is I, I think that there's a, a lot of um, worry around the word anxiety in the uh, in the pilot world. Uh, right, they're anxious anxious about anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, quite simply, a uh, it's 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 my understanding that a a pilot who is working, you know, is not allowed by the FAA to have quote unquote anxiety. But I, I just, you know, at the risk of it, this maybe being a little corny, I've, I've got the definition of the word anxiety right here, which is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Right. I, I look back at, uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, I didn't really learn until my 30s uh, with the help of, uh, you know, some uh, marriage counseling and things like that, uh, how to the difference between thoughts and emotions and the importance of being able to uh, grasp the distinction between thoughts and emotions. And I look back at the first time I sold an airplane on my 16th birthday. Uh, did I have a feeling of worry? nervousness or unease about an imminent event i would hope so (laughs) and and so but but we live in this in this modeled world where you know 
a pilot is not allowed to, you know, claim to be anxious. Uh, I rode in a, in a van from a, from a hotel, which was our effective crash pad at the beginning of um, a job I started in 2007. Staying at the hotel was a pilot from a big legacy airline. He was about 54 years old. He was a very, very junior captain who was living in Chicago, but he was on reserve in San Francisco. He had a wife. He had kids. And him being a junior captain on reserve in San Francisco meant that he was getting home for, I think, about 11 days a month. And we were taking him to the hospital. We were taking him to the hospital uh, because he had chest pains, numbness in his arm. Uh, uh, he, you know, and he was insisting these were the symptoms of a classic heart attack. Mm-hmm. But on the ride over, just talking with him a little bit, uh, he, he was just at the hospital the week before for the very same symptoms, right. had the full heart workup done nothing wrong with his heart, but he was in the space where he was going back to get his heart looked at again, because he couldn't even consider the possibility of, of, of what these symptoms were most likely actually were. And, um, but you know, what do you have to say to offer to pilots who are feeling stress, feeling symptoms, and, and, and about the, who are worried that their career is about to implode because they're, they're, they're feeling, you know, psychogenic symptoms. Yeah. Um, well, so, right. I think that the, the FAA's stance on this, um, and, you know, lift effect, I think part of one of the reasons probably pilots come to us is we don't have any reporting requirements uh, to anyone. Um, we have duty to warn if somebody says, I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to crash a plane. Well, clearly that's, we're not going to help somebody do that, but uh, we, we don't report to, um, you know, to the FAA or, or to anyone. That's the pilot's job is to, is to disclose. Um, I, I would say, one is what is allowed, what is not allowed. Disorders, what we would call disorders. Everybody has anxious or worry. That's a normal, if you didn't, that you would, there would be something wrong with you, actually. There would be other problems um, pathologically if you didn't have any worry. Um, I think anxiety in this context is where it negatively impacts your, your ability to function on a day-to-day. That's what would be called a disorder. Um, feeling sad is normal in the spectrum of emotions, but when it negatively impacts your ability to daily function, then you would call, we would call that, you know, a depressive disorder or a mood disorder. Most people don't have dis, like full-blown disorders. Um, and if you do, those are treatable. So what I would tell a pilot is, um, You know, the, the brain is the most complicated machine and ecosystem in the universe. And it's what we know about the brain is like the, the, the tip of this pen. 
and to try to, you know, classify what is your brain according to a book of, you know, the DSM, here's a, a book of what you have and what you don't is sort of absurd. Yeah. You know, and nobody is, is the expert on you except you and anybody that says they're an expert on you run. You've lived with yourself your whole life. Anybody that's that you go to, to try to get help from, they've lived with you for a few minutes. And so you know if you're feeling okay and you know if you're not feeling okay. And you have to trust that. And if you're not feeling okay, um, it, I think it behooves you to try to reach out and to try to get some help, regardless of the FAA. Now, the question is, do pilots report are they supposed to report? What should they report? You know, we get questions like that every day. Um, what do I need to report? What do I not report? You know, it, it kind of depends on who you talk to. Um, but the idea is, you know, you're supposed to report every visit to the, the, the doctor that you, that, that you have. Do pilots? Well, come on. I mean, we, we know that, that, that pilots don't report everything. Um, that's their choice. That's the pilot's choice. We try to make it easy for them to report. Um, I think that the FAA, a lot of the FAA, because it's a big bureaucratic uh, government agency, a lot of the reasons pilots get denied is not necessarily because of the condition, but because of they didn't submit the information that was required in the right way and in the right order. And, and you know, there, there's complexity with that. Um, most denials are not because of the disorder, but they're because of the, the, you know, what was asked for or what was supplied was in, not sufficient or not in a specific order. Sure. You know, um, but, you know, pilots look in our profession, we're actually paid to be anxious. You know, here's yeah. what's going to happen if we puke the motor at V1, right? Here's what's going to happen. I mean, we're actually paid to do that to worry uh, and plan about what could happen. And so I think oftentimes we're, you know, and pilots are pretty perfectionistic, uh, you know, we're kind of a ginned up bunch. Um, but yeah. to say, you know, you, you can't have worry is I mean, that's preposterous. Um, how many uh, therapists work for Lift, Lift Effect? Well, it's me and, a, and it's, it's my, net, my network, basically, my associates, but there's a, about six of us. Okay. That, uh, that I regularly refer to. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, I was reading in your uh, pilot peer support program where it's what I inferred is that you are working with the, uh, the, the union at a company and um, you talked about referral thresholds in there. Can you uh, talk, talk a little bit what, what you mean as far as referral thresholds with regard to um, support for, for mental health counseling? I'm not, I'm not sure I totally understand the question, but look, let me just say, so um, most of the, like here, here's kind of how lift effect works. Um, I handle most of the cases myself. If I can't, I don't have the bandwidth, I don't have the schedule availability. Then I, I work with these other therapists that are, you know, have been pilots themselves uh, mostly or are extremely aviation savvy, right? I mean, clinical focuses on pilots, HIMS trained, understands the FAA, understands the pilot's life, understands their lifestyle. Uh, you don't have to explain, 
you know, why, why being on reserve and commuting to reserve will wreck your life. You don't have to explain that to, to, to us um, because we either understand it or we've done it ourselves. Yeah. Um, and if I'm not a, just, a, I'm not a good fit for that pilot, then I will refer them to one of my associates that may be a better fit. Right. Sure. So that, that's how that works. Now, if a pilot needs m- more medical intervention, right, then we do refer them out to, uh, you know, a provider in their area, because again, you know, I'm in Colorado, I've got a therapist in Minnesota, I've got one in New Jersey, you know, we're all over the country and pilots are all over the world. Um, And so, you know, we treat everybody via telemedicine, via telehealth um, video, we would call it coaching, you know, but if somebody wants, needs to be seen in the office, um, then they can come. If it's a greater level of care that's required, then, then we get them in the office or if they need medical care, then we match them with a medical provider in their area um, to be able to treat them. Cases where I think they need to be referred out, if somebody is gravely ill, you know, or is in danger of, of hurting themselves typically, then we need to escalate the level of care to somebody in their area that they can, that they can work with. Does that, did that answer your question? Yeah, kind of. I, I, so I guess what I was getting at and what I think I inferred from the, the note that I read on your website is I think it was sort of speaking to once again, the, uh, I wouldn't call it stigma, but the reticence of a pilot to even think about reaching out, for some type of help with, you know, emotions, cognitions, all that thing, all that sort of thing. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know how many pilots at at any given airline right now even realize that they very likely have a pilot peer support committee. Yeah, a lot of airlines don't have peer support committees. But so I, I guess the question is you know someone reaches out to a pilot peer support volunteer mm-hmm. like hey man going through a tough time yada 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 uh i i think what i inferred from that referral threshold was oh, like, gotcha. what type of training you give to the peer support volunteer got before got this it. guy goes you know what I man see- not only would you benefit from it, like I really think you should yes. see a mental yeah. health counselor. It's this is a huge issue, man, it, it, with peer programs. And most of the peer programs at the airlines are trained in basically mental health first aid. Right? They get a day of training, um, and, and and you know, you know, bingo, bango, bongo, they're done. That's it. That's all the training they get. I would say that I don't think that a peer with one day of training is in a position to know what is significant and what is not. Okay. Um, And so I I think peers are often very burdened uh, with not knowing um, whether they, they should, you know, report or not. And in the past, you know, the, the, the peer would say, well, I don't want to, you know, throw this guy under the bus. You know, and so what happens is, is they either kick the can down the road and don't actually help the pilot or um, they end up just trying to save the pilot themselves. 
And they don't have the time or the expertise to be able to do that. So what, what Lift Effect has tried to create is, is a safe place for peers to refer that pilot to. Okay. That was really a big part of even our interacting with peer support programs at all was, you know, uh, you shouldn't burden peers with trying to make a decision of whether somebody needs help or not. I mean, we've, we've seen cases um, where a peer was working with a pilot for months uh, and the pilot ended up killing himself. And oh, it's like, you know, you probably should have referred that out, uh, but they didn't know, you know, this, oh, we didn't know who to call or we didn't know where to go. Or we didn't want to get them in trouble or we didn't think, you know, so it's a big risk with peer support programs and they're not all created equal. Uh, there are a, a couple that are very good. Yeah. Um, and they're really doing a lot. There are some that are, are you know, I don't, I don't think are, 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 are probably taking the steps that they need. The big reason for why I'm invited you onto this podcast is having a sense that many pilots think, oh man, I'd have to be in really bad shape yeah. to reach out to talk to someone like Matt at Lift Effect. Right. You know, can I just talk to my buddy? Can I just talk yep. to talk to Johnny? And <laughs> and and having the right friends in your life and having close family members who you can support and count on most certainly matter a whole hell of a lot. But sometimes you don't feel like you have someone that knows what you're going through. And uh, could you maybe talk about some times in which, or, you know, non, obviously not about any specific person, but just generally speaking, you know, the, the, the good outcomes where people reach out to you, they don't need to be pulled offline. They just needed someone to be, to, to talk to and help them, you know, sort some yeah. stuff out. Well, the pilots that are pulled offline are less than 5% of the pilots that, that we treat. So these are active pilots that are continuing to fly. Okay. Some of them have tapped out. They've said, I can't do this anymore. And, and they're either doing the medication protocol. And so they've got to take, you know, the wait out the required time before they can reapply and help guide them through that. But the vast majority of pilots uh, that we're treating are active pilots they are flying unfortunately you're right pilots don't reach out until they're literally bleeding out on the side of the road that was certainly in the past that was what i was you know i, I would find I, I i would get pilots when they were just at the end of their rope you know they were just done um that's changed and i think it's because uh, you know we've treated so many pilots i, I i've treated you know, 3,800 professional pilots. I mean, that's a lot of pilots. Um, and I think that the word starts within the pilot community starts to get spread around. And so it used to be that the, you know, the peer support programs were the primary referral source and now it's actually other pilots. And so we're, we're starting to see more pilots that are proactively uh, reaching out. And, and actually the younger ones are, are way more proactive about saying, Hey, I, I just want to, you know, uh, I'm, I'm feeling okay, but I, I kind of want to just work on myself. 
Yeah. Um, I want to work on me and I'd like to get some, some therapy or some coaching on that, which is really cool. I mean, it's, you know, but they, I think they're, they grew up with sort of therapy as not this sort of stigmatized thing. And, and I would say counseling is, is, and coaching is not for, it's, it's not just for, you know, people that are, are down. It's, it's for people that are up as well. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, the older generation, uh, they're usually in pretty bad shape by the time they reach out, but certainly, a, a, you know, talking to a pilot that's worked with us and said, Hey, this really was helpful. And this helped me a lot that gives that pilot a lot more confidence to reach out, uh, then, you know, they're, they kind of got, got pinged or got noticed that yeah. something's wrong. And, and now they're sort of being, you know, referred to us. Um, can you talk a little bit about hymns programs, uh, specifically, I was just reading over, um, the guidance for, for a particular hymns program the other day. And there's, I, I read that there's three ways to enter the program. Uh, the two of which are, you know, uh, you have something happen that triggers it where you're forced into it. And then another one is through a process of a coworker or a boss refers right. you into it. And, but then the, the, the first way was a pilot just self volunteers out of the blue to put themselves into the hymns program. Um, obviously hymns programs are a very valuable tool that airlines have, and it's a method of, compliance and getting someone through a really tough time but can you what would you say to someone who maybe just had like a little bit of doubt maybe had a question of hmm you know do do i have a problem with drinking you know do i need to somehow get myself into this program but they're but they're not sure and they're and they're really reticent what would you say to that person so it's a great question, man. It's a really, really good question. Hims is a very, it can be a very confusing process, um, how that works. And certainly one of my colleagues, Don O'Malley, um, is the Hims guy that really, I don't do a lot of Hims related stuff. We're not an alcohol treatment center. I certainly have pilots that are in recovery or, you know, come for substance abuse, but that's a very specific type of treatment um, that's required. So here's what I'll tell pilots. And we get these questions all the time. Um, one is, is alcoholism, true alcoholism the, is, a, is a disease process and it's fatal. Um, it, it, it's, it's, you're going to die from it if you don't get it treated. So that's first and foremost. Whether somebody is an alcoholic or not, it requires them to be evaluated by a substance abuse evaluator. So, you know, a very specific, it's a very specific type of evaluation um, to be done. Look, pilots, if, I think most pilots I know that feel that they have a problem, if you feel that it's a problem, then it's a problem for you. Again, nobody knows you better than you. Um, if, if, you're, if other people are noticing that there is a problem, you might be in some denial about it, which is a, a, a protective defensive mechanism that our brain does, right? Um, maybe it's something to pay attention to. Unfortunately with hymns is it's, it's a, 
it's a bit ham-fisted in terms of like who's in and who's out. There are these thresholds that um, the FAA has deemed as if you, you know, get in your car and you know, let's say you, you don't ever have a drink and you one day you drink five beers and you get in your car and you get pulled over and you blow over a 0.8 or it's actually, I think their threshold is a, uh, I can't remember what it is, but you blow over that threshold, you're automatically going to hymns. Well, geez, you know, is that a real problem? And, and again, the FAA doesn't have the bandwidth to manage every single pilot out there. This is their way of trying to protect the general flying public. Um, so there's, there's, you know, a lot of guys say, I want to get help, but I don't want to go in hymns, you know, and, you know, then go get the help, you know, hymns is a great program if, I would say, you know, you, you really have a problem and you've created some disturbances and you want to be able to get your job back. Hims is the only, really is the only path. Uh, you know, you, 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 you blow positive while you're flying, you're done. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, you were fired uh, and likely go to jail. You're still, is you're still probably fired at a lot of places. Well, you, you do get, when you go, most pilots that go into HIMS, um, especially if they get popped, they are fired, but HIMS gives them an opportunity to be rehired. Okay. And that's what HIMS has done. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's saved a lot of pilots, their careers, and quite frankly, it's saved their life. Um, it's not a perfect program. It does require a lot. Uh, you know, it, it requires you to go to treatment. It requires monitoring. It requires you be actively participating in a 12 step program. It, it's, it's, there's a lot of boxes that you have to check, but for some pilots that have had real prop, you know, that are truly have been alcoholics, um, it's saved their lives and it's saved their careers. Um, I'm now Moving on to another topic, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you have training in family and marriage therapy as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, I feel like there's a pretty good chance that there's going to be some wives or or husbands of pilots listening to this who might have, you know, uh, what would you say to the to the to the family of pilots who feel like, you know their pilot needs help or they need help because of whatever stresses they're in, you know? Yeah, that's a good, that's a, that's a great question, Scott. Uh, again, I think you are the expert on you. And if you feel like you need help, you should trust that you should, you should, um, you should listen to that. And, you know, family therapy, I don't, you know, I don't do family therapy anymore. We don't lift effect. We do, we really treat the pilot. It's the person yeah. that holds the medical okay. uh, family, family therapy is, is in terms of FAA reporting requirements is basically not, they don't want to know about that. Um, it's, it's because, and the reason is even with couples therapy, um, it's an interesting way to conceptualize it, but in couples therapy, the client is actually the relationship. It's not the, it's not the, the either of the, the, the people, it's the relationship. Um, and so you don't, 
I don't think you need to see a specialist at lip effect for, for family therapy or couples therapy. Uh, convincing the pilot to go, a lot of pilots will use the couples therapy as a, as a, as a doorway because they know that it's, it's not, you know, they don't have to really report that. Um, yeah. and, and I would say for a pilot that's very resistant or hesitant, rightfully so about getting therapy, sometimes couples therapy offers a good introduction uh, to the value of what therapy can bring to them. And I've had lots of pilots say, you know, I was in couples therapy and, and, and geez, you know, the therapist said, you know, you really need to go do some work on your own. Uh, and it, you know, it was, it was okay. It was, it was all good. So it kind of gave me enough confidence to reach out. So I'm, I think it's a great, a great doorway. So talk a little bit about what therapy actually is. And if you, do you have a particular school of thought or do you draw from like, you know, many different schools as far as like CBT or. Yeah. Super eclectic. Um, my, when I'm always asked that question, you know, it's like, what do you use or what modality do you use? I, I, I sort of say jokingly, whatever works. Um, but, but it's, there's some truth to that. I mean, I, I think every person is different and certain modalities register better um, with, you know, some people over others. Now, having treated lots of pilots and understanding how our brains kind of work, I've created really my own sort of blend um, that I think resonates really well. It really helps. And I use as much coaching um, as psychoeducation. I always say, you know, the first couple of sessions, we're going to go do some ground school. I'm going to teach you a systems approach to how does your brain work um, when you're feeling, you know, whether you're, you know, feeling anxious or depressed or sad or angry, whatever, the whole rainbow of emotions let's understand from a a, a a neuroscience perspective what is going on uh, so you don't have to tell yourself a bunch of misinformation about what's wrong with you um, it's a brain thing let's talk about that so I, I really spend a lot of time um, educating pilots and that moves the needle significantly just knowing like what is happening for me is is a is a, a tremendous value. And then we can find, okay, here's some techniques or here's some practices that you can, that you can apply to see if we can move the needle even more. Um, I, I guess if, if I had to summarize, how do I treat people? Um, I believe in developing psychological flexibility. I think when we become feeling not well, I just use the word activated. I don't like to use the words depressed or um, anxious or dis I don't like the words disorder. I think that those are really stigmatizing words. Um, I just say, well, we're activated. We just don't feel good, right? We just know we're not feeling good. Whatever that means for you. What's happened is, is there is a level of inflexibility around that experience that's creating the, the, the tension, that's creating the, the suffering. And so I try to really help cultivate um, greater psychological flexibility in my approach. And I've got a bunch of targeted approaches that I do uh, that, I, that I teach pilots and help them implement that makes them a little bit more flexible. And that tends to help them feel better. You also mentioned uh, before, you know, that only a 
only the person, only the pilot knows themselves. So therefore yep. they're really the only ones that can help themselves. Can you just kind of articulate a little bit about how the therapy process is really them helping themselves? Because I, I still think that there's a, a perspective that the uneducated don't have that it's really like, you know, I'm going to go to Matt and he's going to teach me all the things. I'm going to fix a, you. Yeah. 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 I, the first thing I say to anybody that I work with is I can't want this more than you. Because if I did, that would give me too much control. Yeah. Uh, and so that is the truth. You have to want this. If you don't want it, it's not going to work. And, you know, one of the ways that I was educated when I went to graduate school, I went to work with a very specific person. His name is Bruce Wampold, um, University of Wisconsin. And he, he has this model called the common factors model, um, the common factors approach. And really it was pretty disruptive. I mean, it pissed off the behaviorists like crazy. But one of the, to, to sort of summarize it, is therapy comes down to a bunch of factors in terms of whether it works or it doesn't. And some of those factors are um, a rationale for treatment, right? You, if the pilot has no reason to, to go, if it's just they're being mandated, right? Forget it. It's not going to work. Yeah. It's not going to help. So you got to have a reason to want to do this. Second is the, the, the therapeutic relationship, right? If the, if the pilot doesn't like me and I don't really like the pilot, right? It doesn't matter what modality we use. It's not going to work. So that therapeutic relationship has to be there. Um, this, the setting, right? Meaning even though it's telehealth, which I actually find to be, I think in some respects, more effective uh, than in person, but we can get into that. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. But, um, you know, that can be that they've got their, their iPad and they're in their hotel and they've drawn the curtains and they set, and that's how they do it. And that feels comfortable for them. And this is my office and say, they see that picture of the airplane and, and they, they know, they see my sound equipment and it's a familiar setting to them. Um, that's an important factor in terms of efficacy. And then certainly the belief in the modality that the therapist uses. The therapist is just trying to do techniques, right? Forget it. You got you to gotta believe in what you're implementing and what you're practicing for it to work. And so that, that is uh, the common factors, I think, are really important. And so part of that is, is like, if you don't have a rationale for coming, if you don't want this, don't waste your time. You're not, it's not, it's not for you or you're not ready for this. Yeah. You know, it's the difference between empathy and sympathy. Yeah. Sympathy is me feeling sorry for you. Empathy. And look, I might feel sorry for you, but that's not going to help you. Empathy is, is here. Here's, give me your hand. Let me, let me help you. That's important. You talked before about not really being in the family therapy game uh, that you just work with pilots, but I just want to clarify, like, yeah, you know, um, someone's got their, you know, their, uh, the, the, the pot of their marriage or of their, some family dynamic is boiling. They're feeling the pressures of their job. You, you, you're still going to work with that person and, and, and be helping them. It's just that you're, you're not going to bring the wife in and do the whole, you know, yeah. 
family uh, therapy. Look, occasionally we do, or it's like, you know what, we got to get on the same page here. We got to figure this out together. Yeah. But I think that, that, that marriage and family therapists are incredible people and their, you know, their craft is a very specific thing. And I, I think it's like, you know what you need, and the session lengths should be longer. And it really, I think helps to be in person. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, and, and I think it's good for the, the, the couples therapy or the family therapy to have their own person that's separate from that pilot's person, which is me. Yeah. So that's kind of why I don't do so, but it's a lot of coordinating, but sometimes it's like, look, let's get your, your wife, your husband, they need to be here so we can kind of navigate this. But then usually it's like, listen, guys, you need, you know, family therapy is really something that you, you should be doing or couples therapy is a must in, uh, you know, join you know, in concurrence with your individual work that you're doing. Yeah. You know, my, my wife is a, is a, an LPC and, um, and her mentor had, has this, this rule for when she works with couples. And I, and I think it's, well, not only do I, I think it's really interesting and intriguing uh, of her, you know, and, and um, that she uses it, but I feel like it's a good guidance for anyone engaging in, in the process, which is her, her rule is I'm not going to keep like a secret. Yeah from if if we're here engaging in therapy whatever you tell me even if it's one-on-one it is not a secret to be kept from the other you know from the spouse Uh, talk a little bit about the value of honesty when navigating one's marriage or their or navigating the the therapeutic process for themselves so Trans- I mean, there's a difference between lying and transparency. Yeah. Um, lying, like the deeper, I always say like, I really believe that the quality of the question will beget the quality of the answer. So when it comes to somebody lying, I think the, the, the higher quality question in that is, is, it's not just why are you lying, but the reason people lie is because they feel that the truth isn't good enough. That's why they lie. It's, it's not just to protect something. It's because the truth isn't good enough. And I think that that's a more interesting place to understand is, well, we're, you know, and this is where the therapy stuff kind of, you know, coaching is very forward moving yeah. and therapy sometimes is sort of rearward looking. It's yeah. like, and, and I would say is, where did you learn that? Who taught you to do that? That's a better place to start to understanding, you know, untruths. Um, transparency. I, I don't, I don't believe that doing couples therapy, if, 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 you know, somebody tells you something, you know, individually and to, to you know, I guess that's one way to do it is to bring it out. Um, but, but I, I think it's a, it's going to be careful with that. Yeah. It's a well, good way to, to damage trust. This, you know? this person made it clear that this was just their thing. 
you know, and and and, and, and like and and she would always say it before anyone got the chance to potentially tell her something that to incriminate themselves. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So right, it wasn't right. like she's trying to set someone up for a gotcha, but you know, I don't know what I her, can understand it. And it's, it's a hard part of doing couples counseling is navigating these two separate stories, you know? Yeah. Um, but and this is where I'm kind of like more of the accident investigator is like, which is, you know, where my start was before I got into the clinical stuff. It was the human factors stuff. And it's like, okay, but where did this start? Like this dynamic, this idea that the truth isn't good enough. And I think when we get, when we go back and understand where the fire started, it's easier then, you know, to, to, to be transparent on your own about where you're not being truthful. Yeah. You know, that, that's great. Talk a little bit about the value of being coached by, I believe you have coaches coaching credentials, but the importance yeah. of that coach also having mental health counseling training, yeah. because that's a, you want to trigger my wife, just talk about, you know, coaches, coaches, yeah coaches anybody can be a coach right you know it's like just call yourself a coach and a lot of them are complete shit sorry if i swear but you know um i, I think our audience is probably comfortable with swearing oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah your audience um anybody's gonna listen to this uh there and i would even say with therapists too there's a lot of therapists i wouldn't send a paper bag to i mean you know it's uh, but coaches, I mean, you know, life coaching and all this stuff. It's like, what, what does that, what does that even mean, right? I, I think with look, and there are some very good coaches out there. Um, but the problem is, is um, when you coach somebody, uh, you're going to start to see everything. It's going to come out. All of the the dysfunction all of the previous held beliefs, all of the barriers, right? All yeah. of the acculturation, how we became who we are, right? That if you, if you coach somebody and you really are doing a good job of coaching them, right? All that crap is going to come up. And if you are not prepared to deal with that, you're, you're going to have a mess on your hands or you're just, not, it's not going to be effective. Yeah. And, and I think that's where having a therapeutic background, um, is uh, I think it's really helpful. And some coaches you know, are pretty good. You know, they've worked with enough people, they understand, but you know, when things come up, when trauma comes up, um, if you don't have the training, you don't know what the hell to do. Yeah. And that can be a real disservice to that person to not, to not be able to address that. That can actually be quite damaging. Or to assume that you can and you're, and you're, and your coaching ideas are going whatever. to navigate right. someone through a real traumatic right. experience. Yeah, you can really you can do harm uh, to to them. And so I, you know, I've, I've got some pretty strong feelings about the the whole coaching thing. But but the coach, you know, coaching is a really valuable tool. Um, yeah, and I think pilots respond really well to it because that's kind of where we come from. I mean, we, yeah. you know, it's, you. You sort of evoked the idea before talking about maybe there's not some some therapists aren't that good, but you also evoked the idea 
a bit earlier in the conversation saying that if you weren't resonating with someone that you'd refer them to someone else. Uh, talk a little bit about the importance of, you know, someone tries out a therapist, it doesn't seem to jive with them. Yeah. There's a really good chance it just doesn't jive with you. Maybe try someone else. Yeah. Well, I think that that's really lies on the therapist um, to check in and say, how is this going? How do you feel about this? You know, I encourage my clients to be really transparent. I check in with them. It's, it's, I very interpersonal um, with my approach, which is kind of like, you know, okay, well, I'm kind of feeling this because I'm a real human being just like you are. And again, that therapeutic relationship. And it's like, you know, geez, I'm getting frustrated with you. You're seems like you're getting frustrated. Let's talk about, let's use that um, as a, because what happens in therapy is a microcosm of what happens out there. So all of the crap that you do at home with your wife or your friends or at your job, you're going to do at some point, you're going to do that with me. And the difference is the power of therapy is, is I get to call that out. And I get to say, let's use what's going on right now as a way to work on this so that you can then apply it out there. So I'm always checking in with my clients. And I think any good therapist should is saying, how are we doing? How does this feel? Is this working out? Are we, you know, are are we uh, missing each other? Are we, are we understanding each other? And it's actually sometimes the dysfunction or, you know, is a great opportunity to be corrective, you know, to be like, Hey, let's, let's, let's practice in here, how to deal with conflict. Yeah. You know, you mind just taking me back and running through how you got into all of this. Tell me about your, your edge, your education and how you got into flying and aviation. Just give me the whole story. Yeah. Um, like you, it sounds like you started pretty young. I started really young before I was even 16. I just wanted to fly. Um, uh, I think the first impression I had was when I was a kid. Um, when I was little, I was born in Denver, lived here um, through, you know, my early childhood. And we were on a, it was an L-1011, I think. And it was a United Airlines. And uh, we were coming into land in Stapleton back when it exists. And I must've been like four. Uh, and we were just circling and circling and circling. And it was real quiet and everybody was freaking out. And apparently the gear wasn't coming down. And so they, they weren't sure if the gear was locked, locked and down. And I remember everybody was like crying and was upset and it was real quiet though, you know, and I, I didn't really understand what was going on. And, you know, they said, you know, brace, brace. And of course I looked out the window like you do and they had foamed the runway and there was, you know, ambulances and fire trucks the whole way down. And we land without incident, taxi to the gate. And as we're leaving, I remember walking by the flight deck and looking in there and seeing the, the, the flight engineer and the two pilots and, and like the, I remember the pilot was standing there, you know, cool as a cucumber telling everybody thank you for you know your patience being cooperative and you know and and i remember thinking i want to do that (laughs) it just it was so and just seeing all the switches and all the gadgets and and the smell of like the, the flight deck it was so impressionable to me 
um, that it was literally like, it just turned this weird switch on. And anytime we flew, man, I wanted to be like, I want to stop in the flight deck and they would always let me go up there and I would sit in there. And it was just like, you know, it's just the typical sort of pilot thing. You know, you just, you just want to do that. And so it didn't really stop. I just kept wanting to do it. I was begging for flying. Nobody in my family flew. It was not, you know, and I was just begging uh, for flying lessons. And finally I wore my mom down and 15, she was like, all right, just go take some lessons. And so, you know, did it soloed right after 16th birthday, you know, did the whole, the whole thing. Um, but what happened was I, at one point I was doing a lot of flying. I was kicking butt, you know, getting my license, all this stuff. And I had a couple of moments of being really freaked out, uh, in the plane yeah. and nothing happened. It was nothing. It was just, I found myself like being really fearful. And I remember sitting on, uh, my mom will she'll still tell this story sometimes, but sitting on the kitchen floor um, and I was about 17 years old and I was, you know, I was going to go to flights. I was, you know, UND, uh, we went and looked at it. It was going to be UND or Embry-Riddle or whatever. And I, I just had this like moment of crisis. Like, I don't feel like I can do this. I don't feel safe. I'm not comfortable. Uh, and I had no problems with flight training. I was, it just came easy. It was good. I loved it, but I just had this weird. And I remember sitting there, you know, on the kitchen floor with my head in my hands, just saying, I don't think I can do this. Um, and her saying, you know what, if it's meant to be, you'll come back to it. And so I went through college. I did went to college. I got a degree in um, psychology and a degree in communications got really involved in production work, which is kind of this, you know, played a lot of music, uh, was recording albums, you know, in the summer with my band. And then I got a job in a studio and, and it was sort of like, you know, all of the switches and all of the gadgets and all, it kind of fulfilled this sort of techie kind of thing. But flying was always like in the back, in the back. And I was always keeping my eye on the industry and you and I are probably around the same age. You know, there wasn't a lot of jobs. Um, yeah. it, it was like, you know, American Eagle, you know, that was, that was it. Right. And you had to have, you know, 3,500 multi hours to get there. And it was just this long slog. And I remember thinking, you know, I just, I kind of want to get back into it, but it's not really the right time. Um, and so finally moved out to New York, um, worked in the recording industry was actually got a, the first. Uh, job I got was at a studio called Pilot Studios. So I get to the city, right? And it's, you know, nobody will hire you. It's so competitive, you know, and uh, I, I call up this, this studio as Pilot. Okay, what does that mean? I call the guy and his name is Will Schillinger. And I said, hey, you know, uh, can I get a job? And he's like, you know, go pound sand, kid, whatever. And I said, well, are you a pilot? And he goes, well, yeah, that's why it's called Pilot. I said, well, I'm a pilot. He goes, oh, you're a pilot. All right, come on down. <laughs> so I go down and, and I meet this guy and he, and he gives me a job, right? And so I did that for a few years, but aviation was still like, it just was always there. It just wasn't really stopping. So finally, I, you know, I did that for a few years and decided, all right, I'm, I'm doing this. And I moved back. Uh, I was in, my mom lives in Wisconsin, moved back to Wisconsin and then just dove, just dove in to flying and went headfirst into it. And um, 
uh, you know, did the the charter thing and then did the corporate and then and then got on with the airlines. And then once I was in the airlines, um, I always had this intention too of the, the psychology thing was still this burning desire. Um, started doing human factors related stuff, you know, working in that, went and got a degree from Riddle in human factors. And then that opened up this clinical piece and um, uh, was able to, you know, manage the flying, left, went to graduate school full time for the clinical stuff, uh, did that, then went back to the airlines. Uh, and the rest is history. And then I, I worked for the airlines for a number of years until a year ago when I decided to, to hang it up. Lift Effect's been around for uh, since really since 2010. Um, but really, you know, officially 2012 was when it started going. And it's just, it's built up into this thing where I was just not sleeping, you know, it's just, I, I just couldn't do it all. And I decided, you know, it's, it's probably, um, it's important to me where can I be most useful? Yeah. And while flying was uh, useful, there's, I think there's plenty of people that can do that. There's not a lot of people that can do the lift effect stuff. So I just had to make that decision. It was tough, but it was a good decision to do. Um, so that's kind of a, in a 30,000 foot view of how I got, got here. What would your advice or what perspective would you give to any pilot who's thinking of, you know, getting into the mental health therapy game. I, I know that there's a lot of, you know, online K CREP accredited uh, universities. Yeah. Uh, yep. My my wife got hers from the first online K CREP accredited university, which was back in 2007. She started going to school for that. Yeah. And now there's like over 800. A billion. I, I think. Yeah. Uh, what, what type of perspective would you offer to someone thinking about getting into it? Awesome. I mean, yeah, you should do it. I've got a couple of guys that I'm mentoring through and when they're done, they'll come and work at lift effect. Um, if they want to, and they, they do, you know, we're, this is, this is not just about me. This is about, it's about the mission. Um, I think that it's, if, if you have a desire to do it, do it, but do it right. And to me, I think, you know, you can do some stuff online, but with doing psych, psych work, doing therapy work, I think it's really important to be able to, I remember when I interviewed um, to do, and mine was an in res, you know, in-person program, you had to be there every day. It was a big yeah. deal. Right? And, and I said, why should I do this and not do the, just do it online? And the clinical director looked at me and said, because there's a difference between doing the work and, and sitting in the work. And if you, if you want, and sitting in the work will give you a chance to really understand your craft at a very deep level versus just kind of surfacely doing it. And it doesn't mean you can't do online. There's lots of yeah. good online therapists and that's fine. But I, for me, I really wanted a chance to just like, total immersion. I wanted to just be in the work because I knew that it counted. I knew that the, I always knew I was going to do this stuff with pilots. Um, I was, I was sort of doing, uh, I was helping pilots with the fear of flying uh, already before I became a therapist. And so this was like, I knew this is what I needed to do. And I felt like this is such a vulnerable population. It's so specific. 
I want to do this right. And I don't want to, I don't want to half butt this. I want to make this a, a real thing. And so for me, I was like, I got to be in residence. I got to do it. So I would say, if you want to do it, do it. But if you're going to do it because of the, the population that we are, um, you got to do it right. Okay. Get, get mentors, you know, get yeah. mentorship. Yeah. All right. Switching topics again. Um, just looking at some notes I made before the, yeah. uh, the interview. Um, I assume given that you say you've helped 3,800 pilots, you've probably helped some pilots with uh, co-parenting strategies as they've navigated a divorce. Uh, I, I, I just, I just want to throw things like that out because yeah. I, I, I don't think that people understand all of the various reasons why you would reach out to someone with your experience. You know, I think that there's still this paradigm for a lot of people that it's, you know, yeah. I've got to be underwater and needing to be on meds to have to talk to Matt. Like, yeah. like, yeah, no, not at all. It's yeah. And, and that's just, let me just add this is a lot of the, the co really the coaching and a lot of the therapeutic stuff. I, I identify myself as a strategic thinking partner. Yeah. To, to my clients. So yeah, you don't have to be sick and dying to be calling me. Sometimes we just need to be able to bounce ideas and strategically think through with somebody that's a bit more impartial and is trained in that. So no, it's a great question. So co-parenting strategies during a divorce. Um, and each situation is going to be unique almost, but there's going to be a lot of common this, threads that you've yeah. worked with. Here's, here's what's coming up for me, right? I'm going to, I'll answer your question, but let me just say this, having guided pilots through divorces. If you, attorneys are very happy to take all of your money. Yeah. And I have seen many, many pilots lose all of their money fighting it out in court. And if you don't get along with your ex or mediate this thing, the attorneys will take everything. Yeah. Okay. Just say that. All right. So let's talk about co-parenting. That does tie into that though. You need to figure out a way to get along or you're going to screw your kids up really badly. They are going to see um, the example of, of that is going to become the example of how people get along. Uh, and kids are not stupid. And they take it and take it. I've come from a divorced family, you know. Uh, you know, stop making it about you and, and try to make it about your kids. It's hard if one, one part of the partnership doesn't want to do that and you do. But I, would, I always say lead by example. Be the example of the change that you want to see in the other person. If you can't be that example, why in the hell would they change? It's got to start with somebody. And so um, that is where co-parenting goes awry. It's not usually about the kids it's because they cannot, you know, step up and, and really make this less about them and more about the kids. Um, in terms of dealing with the difficulties of parenting, uh, 
when I was living in New York, there was this, this Dominican guy that, that was like the super of the building. And he had like, I don't, like 30 kids. He had like, I just, so many kids and all these grandkids. And I remember asking him one, and all of his kids loved them. And it's like, they just adore him. And I said, what, what is the, how do you do this? Like, how do you, what's the secret to parenting? And he looked at me and he said, parenting is a tug of war that you are designed to lose. It's important that you lose it because that's how they learn to stand on their own. But the key is tie a bunch of notches in the rope so you don't have to let go of it all at once. You can just let go of it notch at a time. And I think in my own life of parenting and certainly working with clients with parenting through divorce is understanding like it is kind of a game that you're designed to lose. Just lose it in ways that you're comfortable letting go of the rope. It's a great analogy, Matt. I, I like that. You know, talking about attorneys, I remember flying with an excellent gentleman. Uh, I was his first officer, uh, I don't know, 14 years ago. And he shared with me a story that he said a, a few years before I flew with him, he wasn't happy in his marriage. So he went and talked to a lawyer. And uh, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to keep all the other details that might, yep. you know, let anybody know who this person is uh, vague, but you know, there were, there were some, some reasons why if, if he got divorced uh, his, his wife was going to be getting a, a lot of his money in the future. And, uh, yeah. and, and the lawyer said, uh, did, did you cheat on your wife? And he said, no. And he, he goes, did she cheat on you? And he goes, not to my knowledge. And then, you know, he's like, well, you got this, this and that going on, working against you. My strong recommendation to you is to get happy. And, is to uh, get what? Say it again. To get, is to get happy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? He said he got happy. And uh, I, I thought, you know, man, if all lawyers could just you know operate like that you know they the, the lawyer gave that guy a great gift you know but 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 maybe he also convinced the guy the amount of financial ruin he would be entering into if he if he if he kept going to you know yeah i mean it's it's uh that's a lot of guys like i can't you know i can't i can't do this because it's going to cost too much you can't do it because it's going to cost too much and you know it's kind of like figure out what your values are. You know, your values are internally generated, not external. Values are, are not dependent on your size of your bank account or the type ratings you have or the epaulets on your shoulders. They're, they're, whether you're rich or poor, you take your values with you. Yeah. And I think when you, you start to live according to your core values, right? I, even identifying what those are in the different areas of your life. It helps people navigate through those kinds of challenges of divorce. If you, if you navigate guided by that, by core values, right? You can find out how to co-parent and negotiate even with somebody that maybe with, they're on a very different page than you. Yeah. But if you're just like cerebral about it, um, you know, be careful. The, the attorneys are happy to take all your money. 
Yeah. T- talk a little bit more about um, uh, values work. I- I'm assuming that you have, you know, set strategies that you've been trained on and how to work with someone on the values that that person has, not necessarily some arbitrary set of values that you yes. think should apply to them. Culture scape value. Yeah. It, I love values work. I think it's some of the most powerful um, work to do with clients. And I do it all the time. I mean, is there anybody I coach, we're, we're going to do values work. And so values, the way I conceptualize it, there's about nine areas of your life. There's your career, there's your hobbies, there's your emotions, there's your spirituality. That doesn't mean religion, but, you know, the sort of what is the greater picture? Uh, Family and friends, intimate relationships, finances, and your community, right? And so what are your values in each one of those areas? Um, Now, when I ask guys, what are their values? You know what they usually tell me? They tell me a goal. (laughs) Yeah. Right. What are your values and finances? Uh, to be financially independent, to have five million dollars in the bank. Okay, that's a goal. That's not a value. A value is it's it's the beacon. It's 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 what is your guide when you get yeah. turned topsy turvy in the storm, because life is going to do that. It's gonna it's gonna throw you upside down. And if you don't know wh- where the lighthouse is, right, yeah. you don't know where to go. And so your value is internal. It's internal. And it's very, it can be very confusing with, for, for people to wrap their head around that. And so there's a lot of these very targeted exercises to start working on, you know, okay, well, geez, what are my values? What, and, and it's not what people told you. It's yeah. what's like deeply held. It's a sense that you have. And we've become so like out of touch with that because of, you know, these, these things, right. Facebook, there's so much FOMO of like, what, what do I need to be? I need to have more. I got to be more. I've got to achieve more. I've got to, you know, and there's just a big difference between like, you know, fulfillment living, which is value-based living and achievement living, which is goal-based living. Yeah. So values work is just some of the greatest gift you can give yourself because when you know your values, it allows you to move through decisions a lot faster. It allows you to know what to say yes to, and more importantly, know what to say no to. But if you don't know that, you're just kind of being influenced by uh, external sources. That's great stuff, man. That's that's great stuff. all right. Yeah. I wanted to touch base with you. You mentioned in the past, you know, part of the coaching aspect, uh, one, one place in which you'll work with people is when they're going through training and they're having uh, yep. problems uh, either on their end, or they feel like the problems are coming from the company that they're working with. What T- Talk yep. a little bit about the services you offer there. Yeah. So it's like your check itis training. It's really mental skills training, um, mental skills coaching, because those types of, unless it's truly is a competency issue. Right. Um, yeah. But with major airline pilots and, and 121 pilots, it's not usually uh, a competency issue issue, especially, you know, when somebody's been at the airline for 20 years and all of a sudden now they can't pass a check ride. Right. There's either there's something 
cognitively going on, or uh, there's a there's a mental skills issue. And so the mental skills training is very performance based. It's very it comes out of the sports psychology, sports performance world. I use a lot of those paradigms um, and it's learning to manage. Um, manage your cognitions. And that's how you can fix those problems. I mean, I've had guys that have had check itis for 30 years. Yeah. You know, it's just like, and they're, yeah, I mean, this, the worst case I had is this poor guy, you know, mainline major airline, you know, left seat, wide body. Right. And this guy had, you know, 13 type ratings, he typed in everything. Right. And never failed a ride. Never, but was so wrapped around the axle about training that he would be dry heaving every morning for six months. I mean, he would finish his PC and literally just start worrying about the next one. Wow. I mean, violently ill daily wow. because of this fear. And so some of there was some psychotherapeutic work that had to be done there, but a lot of it was just like, it was teaching him mental skills, uh, enhancement. Yeah. So it's just a lot of protocol to that, a lot of work, but it's, it's, and I'll, I'll tell you this though, when, when you can't, um, you know, when you're suffering around training and you, you've got lots of reps in the airplane, you've got, um, experience. This is not a competency issue. This is not a execution issue. This is a self-image issue, a hundred percent. And you know, the self-image, which is really the statement of that's like me, that's yeah. what self-image is. If that is tarnished, if that is suffering, self-image and performance are always equal, always. You know, Tiger okay. Woods, right? the greatest yeah. golfer in the history of the game. I don't really like golf, but if you look at his stats, it's pretty impressive, right? When he was going through all that stuff with his divorce, I mean, he couldn't even play at a collegiate level, right? Yeah. Why would that be, right? Because he doesn't have the skills. He doesn't have the experience. Well, come on, of course he does. But his self-image was so low in that that he just couldn't perform. And it's the same thing with pilots. It's the same thing in the sim. When it doesn't make sense, you know, it is a, there's a self-image issue that needs to be worked on and there's strategies to, to fix that. And it works. I mean, I just, I just got this text this morning. I'll show you this. This is pretty cool. Uh, pilot said, hi, her name here. Best experience I had in a SIM at named airline. Uh, I still got stressed during part of it, but lowered my shoulders and said, keep going. At no point did I want to give up. Some parts I perform better than ever. Thank you so much for your help. I feel like a different person. I'll be talking to you again as I proceed to captain upgrade in two months. That's it great. works. Yeah. It just, it, this is teachable stuff. It's fixable. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, unless someone has the problem of overconfidence, which can happen, can. The, the, it, it, can, it yeah. can happen. Yes, it can. Uh, much more <laughs> common is a lack of confidence in, in the training, uh, you know, and uh, the persistent theme that I've seen just having been through, I'm not a trainer myself, but it's 
It's like, listen, you don't have to make the perfect decision. You don't have to make really great decisions. You just have to not pick the horrible decisions. You know, right. like you pick a mediocre decision. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, is, it, is it safe? That's all that matters. Is it safe? Is it safe? Is it there, legal? Does it make sense? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. There might've been a way better answer, but, but if you're, if you didn't pick the, the unsafe answer, it's okay. You know, like just be okay with that. You're going to make some type of mistake. Yeah. I remember our, our, when I was going through some initial at one point, the, the, one of the instructors is like this really old guy who's great man. He took the systems test and, and, you know, guys get their scores and how'd you guys, I got a 98 and you needed an 80. And he goes, you know, you don't get any extra points for those 18 points. <laughs> <laughs> you know, And, and it's like, you know, I say, you know, sloppy success is way better than perfect mediocrity. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, Hey man, I've really enjoyed this. Do you have any, anything else, any, any additional thoughts you'd like to add to, anyone listening to this on just perspectives on working with, you know, yeah, you don't have to do it alone. No, no, you can't do it all alone. And um, I know it's hard with, with, there's so much stigma about mental health um, and, and mental performance, but if you just don't feel right, if you know that something's up with you and again, you're the expert on you, nobody else is um, there is so much, available resource uh to 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 live a life that's better than the one that you got Uh, because when you're suffering and you're not feeling well everything just doesn't look right it nothing feels really good and unfortunately the longer you let it go the worse it tends to get Um, and as pilots this sort of superman idea it's complete bullshit we are human beings just like everybody else. And in fact, we've got more reasons to probably be, um, to have mental health issues than, than the average Joe. We've got a regulator that's punitive, the culture that says don't reach out, a perfectionistic mindset that's just rampant, um, safety critical. We've got furloughs, we've got all this other stuff, right? It's, if you don't feel good, do yourself a favor and quite frankly, everybody else in your life and get, and just get help. There's resources to do it. You don't have to call Lift Effect, call somebody, but if you want to call us, you can, we're here for you. And, um, and yeah, try to live, focus on values because if you don't, you're going to be chasing the upgrade, chasing the, the, you know, I got to, I got to pick up more stuff in open time. I got to have another house. I got to have another car. I got to listen, I'm talking to those guys that have everything and they're still unhappy. And the difference is, is that they, they focus solely on the achievement goals instead of on, on the, the value based fulfilled living. And so I think that's the secret. Good. I, you know what? I, I do have at least one more. Uh, yeah. If, if you, do you have time? Yeah. Okay, cool. You, what you just said evoked the idea of quality of life. And, you know, sometimes I feel a little hypocritical because I get to say this from the cheap seats of being top of scale and, you know, top 
20% of bidders in my base in the left seat. So it's easy to say to right. someone, right. hey, man, are you sure you want to upgrade? Because if you're about to commute to reserve, you're probably going to destroy your life. But, you know, I, I might be a hypocrite because I might have made that choice, too, for the money because the money's substantial. But, like, can you sort of do you, you know, take off the therapist hat, but just as the, the life advice guy for yeah. quality of life, like, are there times in a pilot's career where you see that they're way more susceptible to, you know, divorce, their, or their lives just falling apart, unraveling or, or, or even worse consequences than that. I mean, cause to me, commuting yeah. to reserve for the money and the upgrade at many airlines. I mean, some airlines can, can make good quality of life for reserve and everybody's got a different situation, but, but like, what, what, what do you see as the stress points? Well, I, I think the one thing that you can't ever get, you can always make more money. You can always lose money. You can always buy a bigger house, get a smaller house, get a nicer car, get a shittier car. Right. You can even, I don't know, get another wife, keep her. You know, it's like, <laughs> say that jokingly. But the one thing that you cannot get back is your time. And I see people regularly come to the horrific realization of that if they didn't manage it correctly. And so I would ask, and, and it, it's, again, it's sort of asking those questions, right? Of like, where can I be most useful? Is it sitting in a hotel room in, you know, Vegas in a crash pad, you know, in your underwear eating <laughs> cereal? Because <laughs> there's always that guy at the crash pad that sits in the, you know, and he's got, and he's always got his he's, he's got his, his crystal ball about everything, you know? And, and you're like, dude, don't you have like five kids, <laughs> you know, it, like across the country, you know? I mean, I, I think manage your time and ask yourself, where can I be most useful? If it's in the left seat on reserve, then do it. But if it's, you know what, I might be at home and I got to sit in the right seat a little bit longer until I can, you know, hold a base or, you know, be able to commute in a way that's sane. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's leads to just anecdotally from experience, from my own personal experience, and then working with these guys every day and, and women, men and women. Um, I think that's a better road. If you manage your time, value your time as best you can and ask yourself, where can I be most useful? And then if you want to ask the more profound questions, when you wake up, just ask yourself, am I living correct? Am I loving? And do I matter? And, and try to make decisions based on, again, this is like a mental model, right? Is make a decision based on that. And then if you can't even do that, here's the quickest hack, right? This is powerful. Try to make three good decisions a day. That's it. Maybe it's instead of reaching for the cupcake, I'll reach for some almonds. Maybe it's instead of picking up that trip in open time, I'm going to go take my wife to dinner. Or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a more profound decision about should I take the upgrade and go to reserve? Or is there something more useful that I could be doing with my time? If not, then do it. 
but manage your time wisely. Don't worry about your checkbook. Don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the size of the equipment. You'll get there and it's never going to be enough. You're just going to want more. And so, because we've all lived that. We've all been there. You know, you, oh, if I could just get on with an airline, then you get on the regional. If I could just upgrade and then you upgrade. If I could just get to the main line and then you get there. If I could just get to the left seat. If I could just get to the wide body. If I could just get to the internet. Notice it doesn't work. Yeah. Pay attention. Start using your data points of lived experience to realize, okay, there's something wrong with that. So what is it? What is it that matters? It's your time. That's what matters. And if you can make your decisions against that, I think you're going to have a better, you know, process for deciding what is the best decision. So I don't know if that helped answer your question or not, but no, that's great. Okay. This will be the last question. Okay. Um, I have a hell of a commute. Um, Do you? Oh yeah. I'm, how about how many I'm, legs? Just one from Newark to LA. Oh, <laughs> but, but are listen, you doing that? Oh yeah. And, and it, it, it might be as insane as it sounds, but you know, my company closed my base and I got kids in high school and one in middle school. And I yeah. just decided that, yeah, I'm going to take that one on the chin and they're not, you know, at this age, I, don't know if it's the right decision, but it's the decision we're making, which aligns with our values. Yep. Um, but the silver lining of my commute coupled with my seniority. And occasionally I do get to start and stop in Newark because I've got some buddies who are in the similar situation. So we can, we can, we can break apart trips mid trip. And so like yeah. I, I finished last night in Newark, you know? And so, yeah. I feel like I'm winning every time that that happens. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but the silver lining of, of being the transcon commuter with my seniority is I never have to do red eyes and everything in my life happens virtually in banker's hours on East Coast time, yeah. uh, which I feel like is an unexpected gift of an otherwise shitty situation. Uh, talk a little bit about the importance you see of proper sleep and the challenges oh, with which you, you see it and how it affects pilots' mental health. And, and I'm sure, well, I would, I would, I would assume it varies via individual in this industry. Like, could you, can you kind of talk about some, Good. what you see? Freaking awesome. I, I love that you asked that. Um, I didn't even think to even talk about it. sleep is the number one most important thing for your health and your mental health. When you, it, it, it doesn't matter. Like it, I've worked all sorts of different, done lots of psych rotations and school and everything. And even in a psych hospital, you, no matter what the condition is, whether somebody comes in with psychoses, mania, they're depressed, their anxiety is through the roof. The first thing that we do with them is we get them to sleep. And then we make them sleep and sleep. And so it used to give them something called a B52, which is like a, a benzo and five milligrams of, you know, it's just this little concoction, but it would just knock them out and they would just sleep. Right. And then they would get up, let them go to the bathroom, feed them, and then knock them out again and just let them sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep. And when that person would get up, 80% of whatever was going on was gone. Sleep is, if you don't sleep well, you are done. 
That is the biggest problem that people come in with, with me. And so the first lowest hanging fruit that we work on is, all right, we got to figure out the sleep stuff. That means you got to bid out. If you, that means you got to good, we got to get the sleep under control. Um, and that moves the needle 80% of the way there. So I am a huge, like, and you can do it even if you're swapping, you know, circadian rhythms and all that. Like if you're sitting there watching Netflix, you know, there's a, like, there's a problem. Create an environment that's conducive to sleep, dark, cold, no lights at all, nothing, you know, turn the alarm, the, the, the notifications off, all that crap. Um, alcohol obviously is, you know, yes, it puts you to sleep, but then it keeps you awake, right? So there's, you know, terrible with, with alcohol. That's the worst thing for sleep. Um, caffeine, you know, you can look at the half-life, lots of research. It stays in your body for a long time and it negatively impacts sleep. Yeah, and my, then there's my threshold's 3 p.m. I will not take caffeine after I'm I'm noon, right? I mean it's it's but but yeah, it's find your threshold um and take it seriously. But if you want to improve your health, your mental health, your outlook, your ability to think and and use your brain, um, sleep is the, the easiest thing that you can do to make huge, huge progress. And that is when people really go off the rails. When they, when they need intervention, right? It's when the sleep goes, it's when the sleep is the, it's, and then, it, and then they can't recover from it. That is where they start, you know, tapping out. They're like, I, you're, it's, that is a, a one-way train off the rails um, when the sleep goes. And we all know that we've all, if you've flown long enough, you, you know what it's like to have your sleep wrecked. Um, and so You've got to be the way they build schedules is crap. Red eyes are just shit. I mean, it's just, it's just bad for you. It, yeah. You know, it's terrible. And I think they should just not be allowed. Um, quite frankly, you know, they use all the data and then they don't do anything with it. And anything with it. It's like, what the hell? And the, yeah. you know, thank God for 117. I know that it, it, yeah. it costs pilots some money, but you know, before 117. That that eight hours required behind the door is yeah, uninterrupted. I've only had to use it a couple times, but it yes. was magical to be able to call the company and say, Hey, listen, I'm not coming. I'm walking yeah. in my hotel room right now. I'm not walking out of it for eight hours. Yes. You know? And yes, because we used to get hosed on that, you know, and oh, yeah. being able to call fatigue, that is a federal move. And so, you know, if your company's giving you trouble about calling fatigue, just say, well, I can call the POI. Guess what? No problem. You got fatigue. It's all good. Right. I mean, that is a leverage card not to be abused, but to be used very seriously. That it gives us control of our profession to say, I'm not fit. I'm not rested. I'm not, I'm not going to make it. You need to start the show later or call somebody else. Um, it's very serious, but use your time at home to work on your sleep, make a concerted effort about your sleep. Read the book, uh, Why We Sleep by Matt Walker. It's probably yeah. the, one of the best books written in modern times about sleep. Learn about sleep. It's very serious. It's the greatest thing that you can do for your health and your mental health. So yeah, right on. Good. I'm glad that we were able to, to touch on it. All right, Matt. Well, thank you so Ooh. much. Of course. Thank you, man. This is great. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I just have one ask. 
if you've made it this far and you're still listening, share this. Share it with a friend. Share it on social media. Share it in any way you're comfortable doing it. But that'll help me a lot, and I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you.